Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, CEO of EdSource. California is on the verge of expanding arts education in K-12 schools dramatically. Proposition 28, passed by voters last year, guarantees an annual funding stream for music and arts education. As part of our coverage of this historic change, EdSource is highlighting outstanding arts educators across the state. One woman, Meryl Goldberg, has quite the unusual story. I thought, okay, we're musicians going undercover to meet with human rights activists in the Soviet Union. What would be the way to get completely unnoticed, right? What, what could we do? How can music and other arts help prepare students for all kinds of jobs, from engineer to cybersecurity? Here is this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stavely. Meryl Goldberg was 26 years old when she was asked to travel to the Soviet Union. At the time, Meryl was a saxophonist with Boston's Klezmer Conservatory Band, a group of human rights activists who were helping Jewish refugees escape the Soviet Union wanted Merrill and some other members of her band to meet with a group of musicians over there, known as the Phantom Orchestra. The Phantom Orchestra was comprised of musicians who were also activists. So they really wanted religious freedom, they wanted academic freedom, they wanted people to be able to emigrate if they wanted to emigrate. And these were things that were all up against the Soviet government at the time. They did not want people to emigrate. They did not want people to be playing, you know, music that might have some Western influences. The plan was to meet and jam with these musicians. But the Phantom Orchestra would be sharing more than good tunes with Merrill. They'd also pass along information, including the names of people who wanted to escape the Soviet Union, which Merrill and her friends would then smuggle back to the human rights activists in the United States. But they'd have to connect with the Phantom Orchestra members first. And that would be tricky. We couldn't go into the Soviet Union and just call them up. In fact, most of their phones had been disconnected. If we walk into the Soviet Union with people's names and addresses, we're going to get flagged right away and just kicked out of the country. So Merrill created a secret code. I thought, okay. We're already taking some instruments with us, and it's clear we're musicians. What would be the way to get completely unnoticed, right? What, what could we do that was every day? And I thought, oh, music! Different musical notes equal different letters and numbers. Like if we needed to memorize a, a phone number for someone, um, and let's say the, the phone number was 621-883-whatever, I would just correlate the, the numbers to notes in the scale and memorize the tune. When they got to the Soviet Union, they were searched, as expected. They took my music manuscript book and they opened up page by page by page. And then they just handed it right back to me. It looks like music. No way to know it was a code. This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, how a California professor once coded secrets in music. (music) 
Meryl Goldberg is now 64, and her spy days are long behind her. She's an arts advocate and veteran music and arts professor at Cal State San Marcos. And that audacious inventiveness that she used to make up the code, she's kind of known for that. My colleague Karen D'Souza wrote about Meryl for EdSource. Hi, Karen. Hey, Zadie. So how did you first hear about Meryl Goldberg? You know, I actually just got really lucky. I lucked onto her. I was doing a story about uh, credential programs for arts educators, and I was focusing on one at uh, Cal State East Bay. I was talking to the professor who started it, and he told me about Merrill Goldberg, who might be working on an undergraduate credential. And I thought, well, that's a whole new interesting wrinkle. So I just, you know, called her up. Early on in our conversation, she had said something about how, you know, everyone knows music is kind of related to um Achievement in mathematics. And she said, well, we all know that, but people kind of don't know that musical programming and computer programming, it, a lot of it's the same thing. And I was like, well, how, how do you mean it's the same thing? And then it turned out she has this fascinating story, right? There's not too many times you're talking to someone where you're like, oh, so you lied to the KGB. Got it. <laughs> she has like a million parts of her story. And clearly being a spy is... <laughs> extremely out of the ordinary. But, you know, what stood out to you most about her story? Gosh, I guess the thing about her really is her personality. Like, she just has such chutzpah, and you can see it through all the different parts of her life. She's this classical music maven, but she's also a boxer, and she's really serious about her boxing. You know, she's a professor, but she's kind of a, um, she calls herself a big goofball. Like, she's just really funny, and she's always telling jokes, and she's a natural performer, and she's got such bravery. And I think a lot of times in academia, you meet people who tend to want to do things the way it's always been done, because that's been vetted, and we know, well, everyone understands kind of what the rubrics and the metrics are. And she's not like that at all. She's like, no, we'll just do a whole new thing. And she's fearless that way, and she knows she'll encounter opposition from various and sundry bureaucratic forces, but it doesn't really bother her. She's going to try anyway. Once in the Soviet Union, Merrill and the American musicians with her did meet with the Phantom Orchestra, but they were followed, interrogated repeatedly, and eventually Merrill and her friends found themselves arrested and locked up, surrounded by soldiers toting machine guns. They took away their passports. They weren't allowed to contact family or the embassy or lawyers, and they really had no idea how long they'd be kept. And I think, you know, that must have just been this one kind of bravery to perform in front of thousands of people. But it's really another kind of bravery to put your life on the line like that. Like, really, anything could have happened. That's when Merrill and her friends remembered a piece of advice from the Phantom Orchestra. They said, play music with each other. Think of all the people that have been in your position before you. You are not the first to be arrested. You're not going to be the last. You are part of a whole group of people who are trying to do good in this world. And make sure you you understand that because it will bring you comfort. So there, detained but together, they played music. We were able to use our music to understand that we were not alone that we were going to make it through whatever situation we were going to make it through, and that if we sang to each other or sang to ourselves or played music, that that was going to be our place of freedom. They were also a bit rebellious. We had these, you know, people that were guarding us, and we played a beloved Russian folk tune, but we played it out of tune. 
in hindsight was kind of awful, but it made us feel really good. I mean, to this day, I kind of feel a little bit bad for the young soldiers who had no no choice in guarding us. But, you know, the humor of it helped us get through that difficult, challenging moment. Sort of her whole mantra is that the arts aren't a luxury. The arts are kind of what help you survive this weird, crazy life experience we're all going through. And that certainly in that kind of like draconian political situation, for many uh, people in the USSR, music was a way to just to keep your head up. Merrill and her fellow musicians from the U.S. ended up being deported to Sweden. They were searched again on the way out. But no one flagged the sheet music. So Merrill was able to get the information the Phantom Orchestra had shared with her out. She later went to graduate school at Harvard and majored in education, focusing on the role of arts in learning and cultural exchange. She wrote a book about arts integration. Now a professor at Cal State San Marcos, she teaches a class called Learning Through the Arts, where aspiring teachers learn how to teach reading, math, science, and social studies through music, dance, theater, visual, and media arts. So Meryl's a big believer in arts integration, and that is, you know, well, there's art for art's sake, there's learning how to play the saxophone, but then there's also using the music as a prism to teach other things. You can use music or any kind of art to teach history, to teach politics. There are a lot of other topics embedded in the arts that can actually be easier for, certainly for children, to latch onto and understand. A lot of people will think about arts as a product, you know, so watching theater or seeing a painting up on a wall or listening to music. But really, that's only like the result of art. The real thing that that interests me is what I would call arting, you know, so making art. The process of making art is really what connects us and connects the arts to other things. Things such as content. So, you know, um, there's lots of songs that tell you about events in history and even songs that can depict things like the Four Seasons or, you know, people have written lots of music that, you know, is about other things. Or in Australia, Aboriginal songs, the person who knows the most songs is the most knowledgeable in the community. And songs not only... Um, you know, are about history, but also are a way for people to know their way from A to Z. It's like maps. Karen, what does Meryl's story tell us about the importance of arts? Gosh, I think Meryl's story, it's a, it's a couple of things, really. Um, one, you know, she was an art kid. Her grandfather played in the Boston Pops. And so when she was like three years old, she was a musician already. She was playing with bongos. Like the arts were really integrated into her life and her education and really informed who she is and what she's been able to do. And that's essentially what she wants to make sure every kid has, not just someone who's lucky and is bored at the right family in the right time, but that everyone has that experience of, uh, you know, artistic enrichment, but also what it can do for your brain. I think it's the mandates are there that all the children are supposed to be exposed to the arts. But the fact is, it tends to be something that you see in affluent schools and affluent neighborhoods. And if not that, then affluent families, you know, they um, pay for music lessons on the side. And so not everyone gets that exposure. And that's really her kids, um, her students at uh, CSU San Marcos. They're mostly first generation college students. Many of them come from really struggling circumstances. Um, and so she sees that very clearly, that they, they deserve a break. They deserve the same right to expression as everyone else and the tools to make that expression come true. 
This inequity really hit home to Merrill a few years back when she realized that the tech industry was specifically looking to hire people who had arts experience. So Hewlett, Viasat, Qualcomm, a lot of their CEOs a couple of years ago were talking about how they were hiring people who had experience in the arts because they needed people who could think outside the box, who could be flexible, who could work well with each other. Um, you know, these skills that were instrumental to uh, the work in high tech. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Um, are they really doing that though? And so um, we were given access to do a survey with engineers at Viasat. And sure enough, the engineers had like extra, you know, they took music lessons outside of school. They had music teachers, they had art teachers, they had theater, and they had, you know, a fair amount of art in their K through 12 learning. Immediately, Meryl thought of her students. You look at who's got that skill set. Well, it's not, you know, my students. It's not, you know, kids of color, kids who are in Title I schools. But it's so unfair for these kids not to have these opportunities just because of, you know, where they're growing up. There's also a zillion jobs, even in California, in the arts, and we haven't been able to fill them because we haven't had kids who've learned these skills. Just take animation, you know, and in, in, in movies. You can learn the skills in a year or two, but you cannot make up for all the drawing skills in a year or two. So having the skills now starting young is going to open up so many jobs for people who are native to California. So Karen, Merrill wants more kids to have arts experiences growing up, and she's actually working to prepare more art teachers too, right? Yeah, well, she's primarily a music professor, but then she's also been working in the, um, in the School of Education, and she's created a new undergraduate pathway, kind of targeting music majors, art majors, drama majors, who might want to teach, ahead of the fact that Prop 28 is going to be creating, you know, many, many thousands of jobs for people in the state of California that never existed before. So even if you did want to teach children, you know, how to paint, that job didn't exist and now it will. So I guess the, the notion is you go through an undergraduate pathway and then there's a, a supplemental authorization for a credential. I think she sees it as a way of opening up possibilities. You know, in California, there's a huge boom in the cybersecurity industry and there's lots of people who could get those jobs if they knew that there were a connection between, you know, the music they like to play and really lucrative employment. The goals of cybersecurity include empathy, being able to think outside the box, innovation, working well with others, you know, so these several goals that actually fit beautifully with music and the arts, right? The woman who runs the cybersecurity agency, um, CISA, is also a musician and they have jammed together. And Merrill has spoken to their groups. And it turns out that if you look in cybersecurity, like, I don't know, three quarters of them all play music. There's something about the way that the musician's brain works kind of firing on all cylinders and seeing the abstract patterns that the rest of us maybe can't hear. Also the ability to kind of improvise and think fast. And I guess when you have to, when you have to fight hackers, you have to be more innovative than the hacker. Um, she's fond of saying, you know, you don't really have to teach people facts. They can look those up, but you have to teach them how to be innovative and how to be creative and how to be resilient. And the arts really teaches you all of those things over time. The arts matter in ways that are might be unexpected, but you know, career pathway, cybersecurity, yeah, the arts matter. 
Career path, medical school, yeah. Career path, law enforcement, my gosh. NYPD in New York commissioned a wonderful play on Emmett Till meeting Anne Mm. Frank. Back to empathy, so that their rookies would start understanding people and have empathy. You know, Dennis Donahue is a a guy who once said, you know, the arts aren't going to cure a toothache, right? And that's true. But you definitely want your dentist to have studied the arts because they're going to be able to think outside the box. They're going to be able to look in your mouth and make decisions that, you know, are are better than if they just memorize something. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. You can find Karen's story at edsource.org. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to our guest, Meryl Goldberg, and reporter Karen D'Souza. Our CEO is Anne Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the Heller Foundation and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. Subscribe so you won't miss an episode.